Hello and welcome to the weekly Bunker Roundtable with me, Andrew Harrison. This week, the Tory leadership has come down to cosplay Thatcher versus the hedge fund socialist. As the most interminable leadership battle since Daenerys Targaryen versus Cersei Lannister unfolds, we ask what trussonomics would really mean and whether the two contenders have a vision for Britain in the world beyond shouting at the French. Plus, we take a look back on the Olympics opening ceremony from 10 years ago this week, long ago before everything became awful. All that and more on this week's Bunker. Thanks for listening, and especially if you're one of the legions of people who've joined us since the fall of Boris Johnson. We are experiencing a Boris bounce on our crowdfunder Patreon, so thank you so much, Mr. Caretaker Prime Minister. If you, listener, would like to join the angry mob and help us to make more podcasts, you can back us for as little as £2 a month. You get the podcast early and ad-free, as well as merchandise like mugs and t-shirts, but most of all, you will have our undying gratitude. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Okay, let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back to former diplomat, host of the essential podcast Doomsday Watch and author of brand new book, How Britain Broke the World. Out right now, it's Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Andrew. So we're heading into the sixth month of Russia's war on Ukraine and everybody's digging in for a long haul. There's a European Commission plan for member states to cut their gas use by 15% from August to March. There's a lot of pushback on this. What What is going to happen if EU countries don't cut down on their imported gas use? Well, the issue here is that the EU is trying to uh, create additional powers around individual EU countries' use of energy. And you can understand, in an emergency, this is how the EU kind of grows. It grows through crises. You can understand why they want to do that. And and they're talking about mandatory gas reduction targets, uh, which would be applied if there was an emergency. But of course, you can equally understand that some countries, particularly those that are perhaps in the far west of Europe or ones that are are not directly reliant on Russian gas, are a bit reluctant to allow this to happen. So it is a bit of a crisis. Uh, It, of course, gives uh, some power to Russia because they can see that Europe's divided over its reliance on Russian gas. And it's not at this stage clear how that will eventually work out. And what's the reality behind this grain export deal? Some cargoes have already started to move, but as everyone would have heard, the Russians also fired a missile at Odessa, which of course is one of the key ports, uh, but not the only port. The Ukrainians do actually have other ports on the Danube, uh, so further west. Um, If you look at uh, the global wheat price, it's actually fallen right down to where it was at the start of the conflict. So it is arguable that the the sort of major crisis around wheat supplies for the moment, in terms of where the markets are, they they seem relatively comfortable. But I think there is still uh, the risk of, a, of another huge crisis later in the year when the demand rises, the fact that Russia has a track record of agreeing to deals a bit like this and then uh, reneging on them in, in order to you know, hold everyone to ransom. So I think it's, uh, we, we just have to keep an eye on this, basically. Back on the bunker after too long, last seen on Question Time, giving Suella Braverman a real talking to. It's Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation, Miata Fambale. Hey, Miata, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Great to be back on. Glad to have you back. It has been a week of shock and horror as people who voted for a hard border at Dover discovered that there's now a hard border at Dover and also that the government refused a request in the port of Dover for £33.5 million to double the capacity for passport staff. 
I mean, on top of the queues for holidaymakers, Brexit has caused a 14% drop in UK exports to the EU. Is there any precedent for that? Have we ever seen a collapse of exports like that before? Not in peacetime. The really important thing to always remember is that, you know, the EU was and continues to be our biggest trading partner. Um, so if we think uh, back to 2017, just after the referendum, about 44% of UK exports went to the EU, which is a huge, huge amount. Now, the 14% drop that we've seen in the most recent uh, figures is in part Brexit. It is in part, you know, pandemic disruptions. And I think that's what the Brexiteers will argue. Like it's the pandemic, it's other factors, it's not Brexit. But it's clearly a combination of the two. And only time will tell. I think for me, the thing that's really worrying is that we saw that 14% drop in the value of um, exports to the EU. But we didn't see that compensated by exports to other countries increasing. So the overall value of uh, UK exports has gone down by 14%. And if you remember the kind of the promise uh, was, you know, we're going to be this buccaneering country. And yes, there might be an impact on exports in the EU, but we'll go and we'll trade with other countries. And that is clearly not happening. And that is potentially hugely damaging for our economy. Completing the panel is the independence political sketch writer, Tom Peck. Hiya, Tom. Hi, how are you doing? Not bad, not bad. So Parliament wrapped up last week with a typically graceless Johnson performance. Do you, <laughs> do you feel kind of spent and exhausted after three years on the Johnson booking Bronco? Will we ever see anything like this again? Well, I was on a spectacularly well-timed holiday last week, so I'm quite pleased <laughs> to say that I wasn't actually there. Um, I haven't watched it back. I, I don't suppose I ever will. Um, he was a terrible parliamentarian, and in that sense, he will not be missed. I mean, I can't think of a single impressive moment he ever had in the House of Commons. I, I I've enjoyed quite a lot of his party conference speeches because that's his natural home. He's, you know, he's an after dinner speaker and that's it really. But I don't think the House of Commons will especially miss his contributions, although we may find that there's, there's several more to come on that front, but we don't really know. I don't feel especially spent and exhausted. No, I mean, my life is a lot easier when there's, when there's constant chaos. And, um, you know, it feels like I've been stealing a living for quite a long time now. The thing about Johnson is that that people imagine he is some great gift to satirists or to parodists, but he really isn't because he's very self-consciously his own parody act. I mean, he has a highly contrived style and he's rather good at it. No one can really improve upon Boris Johnson's own Boris Johnson act because he's been working up all of his life. But the gift that he definitely gave us was just the constant, constant madness. I mean, it was never dull. But it's important to remember that the madness came in two halves, right? There was the Cummings half where everything was insane because Cummings was deliberately smashing everything up, the Perugian Parliament being the key one. And then there was the second half where everything was insane because Johnson was just completely out of his depth and no one was really helping him. But that the, the key part of that half was really just people like me writing the same thing over and over and over and over again for what has felt like years now, which is just that he was clearly lying his ass off about the Downing Street parties. And, and, that, and that's still going on now. Um, you have to hope that we won't see his like again. Um, but things have a habit of getting worse. And in many ways, we shall see, things might be about to get even worse. But I'm sure we'll come on to that later. I'm just imagining you sitting on the beach going, of all the weeks to book on holiday, this one. It's like getting subbed in the last five minutes of the game or something. Why am I not there <laughs> watching the coffin being lowered? I want to ask you, what did you make of the, the, this insane telegraph Story. I'm saying story in quotes because it, it is barely news that Conservative members are supposedly wanting Johnson on the ballot with a, a teeny tiny um, petition. 
I mean, it's a bit like leaping into the grave to weep on the coffin, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is a campaign by Lord Peter Cruddus, Chief uh, Johnson Backer, who's donated very large amounts of money and is now quite cross that that money seems to be vanishing into the ether. I mean, I read his um, I read his column in the Mail in which the second paragraph talked about how the fact that the Johnson being deposed by his own MPs makes the makes the UK a country that he barely recognises any longer. I mean, I actually went and looked it up, and um, Cruddus was born in 1964. There have been 15 uh-huh. prime ministers in his lifetime, uh, and nine of those, sorry, 16, and nine of those 16 have been have either retired or been forced to resign. Uh, they've, they've, they've not been removed from office via a general election. The country has not changed. It has always been like this, and I think Peter Cruddus's little petition will be quite wisely ignored. Yeah, I looked out the window. I still recognise it. It's still there. <laughs> If the Conservative press and it appears the blue rinse wall get their way, we will shortly be welcoming Liz Truss and her four quid earrings into number 10. And that means Trussonomics. In an interview on Radio 4 last week, she set out her economic plan, arguing, amongst other things, that her tax cuts will decrease inflation. Miata, I mean, I feel embarrassed almost asking this, but is this in any way plausible? No, do you know what? I, I, I spent a while just trying to think it through, right? Because you just assume that people don't make flaky stuff up, that they're trying to sort of put some credibility behind what they're saying. And it's really hard to find a credible way in which that statement stacks up, not least because we have to keep remembering a big driver of the inflation is imported, right? It's to do with energy prices that are coming from the outside. It's to do with uh, global market disruptions coming out of the pandemic. There's a whole load of stuff that's almost external that's driving inflation. It's not being driven by, you know, the fact that demand in the economy, for example, is huge. So I can't see a world in which reducing taxes does anything to solve that problem. Now, I think where it may help um, is, you know, there is on the flip side of things, the risk of recession. Um, And it's certainly a stimulus. So it is a way of stimulating the economy. But I'd argue it's the wrong sort of stimulus that's targeting the wrong part of the economy. She also wants to uh, increase tax revenues by growing the economy. That is the logic behind it. At a time of low unemployment and record job vacancies, is that a plausible thing to do at this particular time when the you know the economic problems are inflation caused by shortage of employment rather than by what I can vaguely remember from my economics A-level 100 years ago, supply side stuff? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in the end, there is there is very little evidence uh, and the Office for Budget Responsibility has sort of come out saying this, that actually, you know, the argument that if you reduce taxes, that in some house sort or of drives tax receipts is just it's there isn't that much evidence to back it up. Uh, but for me, you know, the, the bigger issue that I have is the, the totality of her tax uh, programme is about 30 billion. And if you're going to spend 30 billion the big question for me is like, what's the best way to spend it in the economy to get maximum bang for buck? And it isn't, for example, reducing corporation tax. You know, for me, it would be putting it in the pockets of people who are struggling, not least because they will spend and that potentially uh, will help us stay recession. But we learned in the last 10 years, you know, the UK cut its corporation tax to one of the lowest in Europe. Yet our productivity lagged behind countries like Germany. Our growth rates lagged behind many European countries. The argument that just slashing corporation tax somehow will mean there'll be huge amounts of investment and suddenly the economy grows just isn't true. It hasn't been borne out. 
And for me, the bigger issue for us in all of this debate is one, living standards and how do you get the economy to actually work for people? And there is no answer in the proposals that she's putting forward or indeed wish is. But but secondly, you know, the, the, the bigger issues for every time these politicians talk about tax cuts, that is money they're taking away from public services. And I haven't heard an answer of in the world where our NHS and our social care system and our education system are all on their knees. How on earth do they square that with tax cuts that will disproportionately benefit the rich? Can you put a bit more bones on the difference, such as it might be, between trustonomics and rishinomics then? Because all most of us can see is a choice between borrow to cut taxes right now or tax cuts when inflation is, is, is dealt with. Is there any more detail on what they want to do yet? The short answer is no. For me, both are aping a form of kind of Thatcherite economics that, by the way, makes no sense in the current world. You know, the 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 economy, the labour market are all very different to the way they were in the 1980s. And I think it says a lot that there isn't fresh thinking about, you know, what is your conservative answer to driving up living standards and improving the economy? Um, and the, the, the main difference between them is, I think, Rishi speaks a more credible game, whereas Liz is clearly away with the fairies. Um, and then secondly, it's the difference between, you know, we'll cut taxes now or we'll wait and we'll cut taxes. He's still going to cut taxes irrespective uh, before a general election for the politics of it. And the question for me is two things. Whatever you do to your economy, how is it helping people's living standards? Because the biggest crisis that we have in economic terms for me is the fact that living standards won't have improved for nearly 15 years. Like that is the biggest economic question they have to answer. And then the second question is, if you're going to slash taxes, how on earth are you going to be paying for public services when we know there is acute, acute shortages, uh, when we know there's an investment problem, when we know many of our public services are at, you know, teetering on crisis? And unless both can provide an answer to that, I take everything they say with a pinch of salt. Well, speaking of Thatcherite throwbacks, I was amazed that when she was asked on Radio 4 for an economist who supports her plans, she came up with Patrick Minford, a figure that is like a figure from my childhood, the kind of standard bearer for ancient Thatcherism. This is a guy who predicted that Brexit would boost GDP by 7%, that the minimum wage would be a disaster. I thought I'd heard the last one, yet here he is again. I mean, does, does citing him serve any purpose at all other than saying, hey, Thatcherism to the, um, the selectorate? I think that's all it does. I mean, and even that, I'm not sure, you know, it does that much because many of them won't, it just won't resonate. Um, uh, you know, I, th- I think in truth, she came up with a flaky statement. She was asked <laughs> to name the name of an economist that could back it up. and clearly <laughs> struggled to think of anyone other than this run, one random chap that um, is from a bygone age that potentially speaks to an economics that I don't think pertains to the reality that we see today. So, you know, I think for me, it signals, you know, uh, signals Thatcherism, but it, I think, is as much about someone that is uh, flailing. Yeah, I, you've now got me thinking about dumb Britain in private. It's like, name an economist. <laughs> uh, Patrick McNee, he'll do, yeah, or something yeah, like that. Exactly. Tom, um, are, right. you looking, are you looking forward to the debate tonight, Blue on Blue Monday? Oh, Jesus Christ. No, of course I'm not. Why would anybody be looking forward to that? I mean, it does mean that I potentially, well, it's, it means that the Peck household will at least not have Love Island on at 9pm, which is, so there are some benefits. Um, I mean, it's going to be completely miserable, isn't it? Um, the, 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 the poor quality of the debate thus far, all it really does is speak volumes 
about the poor quality of the candidates. It should be possible for those two people to have a meaningful discussion about their vision for Britain. But the fact that they're incapable of doing so just, just, does not bode well for the years ahead, does it? I mean, we're only like, what, a week into this and already the fatigue is kicking in. They just seem to shout tax at each other. How How is this going to play? We've got another, what is it, three or four weeks of this? Well, it's going to be miserable, isn't it? I mean, everybody has been sent mad. I mean, this morning, I think, what didn't Liz, Liz Trust said something along the lines of, um, I'm going to double down on levelling up so that everyone has a chance to succeed in an aspiration nation. And meanwhile, her little outliers are slagging off Rishi Sunak for owning a pair of Prada loafers and, and celebrating <laughs> her four quid earrings, right? What is this? What is this? This is going to be a very particular aspiration nation in which the Prime Minister proudly boasts of wearing four pound earrings and anyone who's got Prada loafers will be publicly shamed. And this is what I really and truly don't get, right? I get that it's a weird election in which they're just appealing to Tory members. And that's why they're all going on about Rwanda, which is a completely unworkable policy, but they sort of don't care. But at the same time, they're almost, they seem to be advertising how little that like Tories they are. Like they're going on, they're going on about how much they hate lawyers. I mean, is there anything, is there anything more Tory than being a lawyer? Is there anything Tories want their children to do more than become a lawyer? And is there anything- they're not an activist lawyer. Don't be an activist lawyer, be an inactivist lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Be a corporate, be a corporate lawyer. Um, and, and, you know, like it, are Tory members supposed to like be on the side of someone who 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 doesn't aspire to owning an expensive pair of shoes? I mean, is that not core Toryism? I don't really know anymore. I feel like we're in the upside down. <laughs> I mean, I remember the, the May campaign being quite nasty, but I cannot remember there's ever been a campaign as rancorous as this one with so much sniping going on over so little and with such a terrible prize at the end of it. It's like, who wants to who really wants to win this bucket of shit? Well, yeah, but the, the prize is to become prime minister, and that, and don't, and don't ever forget that that is principally all politicians, especially conservative politicians, want to do, and that's why they have to be dragged out, kicking and screaming, because they don't care so much about what they want to do with power; they just want to be, at, they just want to get their hands on it. So they, they don't. I don't think either of them consider the prize to be a bad prize. Um, the fact, that, I mean, it, it's weird, isn't it? Because the two of them pulled out of the Sky News debate last week, quite clearly did a bit of a stitch up between them, quite sensibly in a way, seeing that all that was going to happen was the two of them were just going to criticise each other on, on personal terms rather than on meaningful policy terms. And now, having done that, they're right back into it and they're dialling it up. And they don't really seem now to have anywhere to go apart from slagging each other off and making very cheap political points that the public don't really care about. And it's going to be like, I mean, where, where are we going to end up in four weeks' time if we're here already? So are you looking forward to uh, Prime Minister Trust just purely as material, even though she'll basically sink the entire country? Yeah, I mean, I think at this point you have to hope it's trust because the only real hope for the country now has to be Tory defeat in two years' time. And you have to think that we'll just have two years of trust insanity, at which point Tory defeat will be utterly assured. But then one makes political predictions with a, with a great deal of reservation at the, at the moment, and, and that's been the case for a very long time. I mean, I wish I had something more insightful to say about Liz Trust than this, but the thing with Liz Trust is that she's just so weird, and everybody <laughs> who's worked for her, it's the first thing they tell you is that she's really, really odd. Like, she's an odd person to be around, and the public are going to see that very, very quickly indeed. And I think the Tory MPs are kind of struggling because they're placing their loyalty in one or the other, for kind of tribal reasons and, and sort of reasons of, of jostling for position to the extent that they don't really seem to have clocked that the consequences of this are they going to foist on the country a very, very strange prime minister and the people will very quickly wonder 
what the hell has happened and why on earth it has been allowed to happen. So there will be some good material, but it will mainly be just just pointing and laughing, which is fine by me. Arthur, one of the highlights of the weekend was Liz Truss telling France to sort out the queues in Dover as if they'd listen in another bit of kind of Thatcher performance handbag waving. Has the idea of Thatcher eclipsed the reality reality of what she stood for? Because, I mean, she pushed hard for the single market. She considered borrowing to fund tax cuts immoral. And the person who's doing her utmost to channel her is doing the opposite of all those things. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any real engagement with sort of who Thatcher was. I mean, I, I checked this. Uh, Liz Truss and I are almost exactly the same age, as it happens, about three months separates our births. And, uh, you know, I was I was a, a fairly young kid when Thatcher was booted out. Um, and so it, it it's impossible that Liz Truss has a genuine sort of personal connection with Margaret Thatcher. But it, it's just that it's a bit like the Churchill thing, isn't it? It's, she's just a, a person that you cite that makes you sound like a serious Tory. But but as you say, I mean, Margaret Thatcher never would have gone for Brexit. So it, it's um, none of this is real. It, it, it's a performative stance. But also the Conservative Party itself is in love with this kind of unreal version of Margaret Thatcher. If you know, if you were 20 in 1979, you're 63 now, you've got another 20 years in you. They're never going to grow out of this, are they? She's going to remain a totem forever. Well, it, I think that there's a wider point here, which is that the, the structure of the Tory party and its policies are an attempt to maintain the control of that uh, generation on on Britain and in, to ensure that you know our economic policies and uh, our you know suit people who are homeowners who who um, maybe rely more on savings and pensions than on earned income and so on. But unlike in America, it's a bit harder for them to sort of gerrymander our systems to ensure their grip on power. So that's that's really going to be the the struggle of the next few years, I guess. Miata, just to close this off, I know this is a big ask and I know it's stretching credulity, but what would a sane and rational government be doing at this moment to deal with Britain's economic and cost of living crises? Take as long as you like. <laughs> Have you got a day? No, in a nutshell, <laughs> for me, I think there are two parts of it. I think the first is recognising that the drivers of inflation that are coming from outside um, are really tough for any government to deal with. And the the most important thing you've got to do is to protect people against that. Um, and for me, that is about particularly protecting those um, on low incomes. And so, you know, I want to see them increasing the national living wage so it reflects the true cost of living and then compensating small businesses in particular uh, so that basically the state set, steps in uh, to ensure that people are earning enough uh, to be able to absorb this. Um, and then alongside that, social security, um, because the people at the sharp end of this awful, awful cost of living crisis are those that have been hammered for a decade as, you know, their incomes have been slashed. And so, you know, £17 billion to boost Social Security, that would take us back to the levels that we saw in 2010, that would allow people to weather the storm. And then in the medium term, and by the medium term, I'm talking by year two, year three, we need to do things that will build our resilience. The first in the energy market, because that's the biggest driver of this cost of living crisis. And I think there are two things. We know that we need to reduce the amount of energy we use. Uh, so why we don't have, you know, what we're calling for great homes upgrade, a massive programme and national effort to insulate our homes so that we can reduce demand for energy, reduce bills. But alongside that, a big push to increase renewables. And the thing I find interesting is, as companies 
have to deal with the increase of wholesale costs, what we're seeing is a lot of them are going bust. So, you know, the promise of competition in the energy market is not a thing. And yet what the government's doing is passing those customers on to a handful of essentially monopoly providers that will always, always ensure that the market works for them rather than consumers. And I don't understand why we aren't bringing a public sector operator to hoover up those clients gain market share and just massively disrupt the market and then invest in renewables in a massive way to bring down the cost of energy and also our energy security. And then the final bit for me is incomes. This cost of living crisis is so painful because we've had getting on for 15 years in which living standards have not budged, in which wages have been stagnant for huge parts of that. And you've got to tackle that. And that's about pay at the bottom, uh, which should reflect the cost of living. It's about the power of workers, which takes us to kind of union and collective bargaining and strengthening that so people can negotiate better deals. But it's also about targeting Parts of the economy, you know, the everyday economy, retail, hospitality, where we've got low productivity and low pay. And unless we have a concerted effort to try to improve productivity in those sectors, to boost pay in those sectors, they will have an impact on a huge part of the population. And parts of the Northeast that, you know, have like 65% of their jobs in these sectors will always be held down. So for me, those medium term efforts are absolutely key. But for now, They've got to protect people against price rises that no one, no one can absorb without it. Whoever is announced as the winner on September the 5th will inherit not just a domestic economic catastrophe, but a full set of international challenges too. That's Ukraine, the Northern Ireland Protocol, an increasingly belligerent China, the whole question of the defence budget, and, of course, the hated Rwandan expulsion scheme. This raises a lot of questions. For instance, would the comedy value of a Liz Truss administration be diluted by her accidentally starting a nuclear war? Arthur, <laughs> let's start with Ukraine. Uh, Truss stood up to Putin apparently, by wearing a hat in Red Square. Do you have any faith in either of them over Ukraine? Will, will, will Britain continue as heretofore, do you think? Yeah, I mean, to be fair to both, which is not necessarily something I have to do, uh, Britain will, and in a way, the point here is to underline that Boris Johnson shouldn't claim credit for the Ukraine policy because it's squarely in line with where Britain's foreign policy has been for some time. You know, we're a hawkish member of NATO because of where we are geographically. We're not threatened by Russia's energy um, blackmail. So we were always going to be likely to provide the Ukrainians with weapons to defend themselves. And it's also proved politically very popular for Boris Johnson. So I can't see any reason why trust would change it. There's been a bit of a hint that Rishi Sunak is slightly less firm. But I think that's more a case of people trying to discredit him, more, more you know, uh, Truss and earlier Mordant's people trying to discredit Sunak rather than any real evidence for that. They're in a kind of an auction on increasing defence spending, aren't they? Truss has said she'd put military spending up to 3% of GDP by 2030. She's going to review the plan to cut the size of the army. Sunak's refused to commit to what he calls an arbitrary 2.5%, which Boris Johnson promised. Do, but I mean, the bigger question is, do either of them really have a handle on the real defence issues here, rather than just saying, yes, I'm going to increase it? Well, no, they don't. But I also think there's something interesting here where we're going through something which feels a little bit like a general election, because at the end of it, you get a new prime minister. But unlike a general election, there's no actual manifesto. There's very little scrutiny on the, the different claims that, and, and promises that they make. And of course, there is no expectation that you will implement those so-called manifesto promises. Now, you might say that 
in normal at general elections, governments often let you down. But there's still, you know, we still just about have the norms in British politics that you have manifesto promises, which you will then commit to. I think it's very easy for them to all sort of fall over each other to claim that their their mantle on, on defence spending and, and other issues. But as you rightly say, I mean, neither of them have got a particularly strong track record on this. Yes, Truss is foreign secretary, but she's been a bit of a joke foreign secretary one of her first major meetings with Lavrov just ahead of the invasion, she screwed up completely, got in a muddle about one bit of Russia, thought it was part of Ukraine, uh, you know, and allowed herself to be humiliated by the Russians, albeit, you know, the Russians do that to people. They're, they're not um, good faith uh, negotiators. But so, so I, I, I think the best you can hope for is that the officials running our national security policy on Ukraine continue to run it and, and, Trust or Sunak just nod along with them. Will you be sitting up at night worrying that she's going to start a nuclear war over Taiwan then? I think it's pretty unlikely. I think a bit like with uh, Donald Trump, not, not that I'm saying that she's quite in that territory, but you have quite a lot of fail-safes to help the, shall we say, slightly more intellectually challenged leader to um, uh, before they sort of hit the red button. So I think we're going to be all right. Miata, uh, both candidates have committed to uh, seeing the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill through. It's become something of a Tory virility test. Are they really ready to risk a trade war with the EU just to uh, keep the electorate happy, do you think? I really hope not. And to be fair, I mean, I think I think Rishi is a reasonable person. I think in the end, you know, when he's provided by uh, his officials um, advice, he considers it. And so I, I don't think in the end he would. I'm not so sure about Liz Truss. For her, given that her base is now squarely in the right of the party, I suspect she can be buffeted. And therefore, I think it's really dangerous. Um, and because it, it won't just be about becoming prime minister, it will then be about shoring up your base for a general election. And I suspect we're going to see quite irresponsible talking up of things that they shouldn't be um, in order to play politics over the course of the next 18 months. They've also both said they'll see through the Rwanda policy, even though we learned this week that Rwanda has only got capacity for 200 deported migrants, meaning that the cost to Britain is £600,000 per person. Setting aside the obvious amorality and cruelty of it, it's quite bad value for money, isn't it? I mean, it's completely bonkers. Uh, look, I, I can barely talk about the Rwanda policy because it winds me up so much, because it is just putting aside just the you know, amorality of it, it is just a really bad policy on every, every level that doesn't solve the problem that they say they they are genuine about solving. So I think this is just an indication of it. It won't fix the problem, but it signals and they get to say that they have a policy on an immigration. They get to signal to their base, which who, by the way, really like the Rwanda policy. And that's what it serves to do. It's about politics. It's not nearly about economics and it's certainly not about value for money. Yes, I want to ask you from the, the point of view of the economy. Um, Sunak is talking about a 25% increase in the defence budget. Truss is talking about a 50% increase in the defence budget. Is that feasible in the situation we find ourselves in? No, look, it's about choices, right? In the end, public finances, spending, these are all about political choices. And, you know, if they choose to increase defence spending for that amount, and there'll be many people that argue that we are now in dangerous times and there's justification for that, you know, in a world where they are set on, if you like, capping the size of the state, capping the size of tax receipts um, in order to you know, pay for the things that they want to, that does mean that they're taking away from somewhere else. And what worries me is, you know, I come back to the point, 
our public services, the thing that underpins our entire social contract, are literally at a pivot point where many are on their knees. And so if you're making a choice to slash spending and investment, whereby over the way we've got a 10-year backlog on investment, in order to spend more on defence, that's a political choice. But there are clear repercussions of that. And I think that is the debate that we need to have as a country. And you balance that against you know, the threat, and there is a genuine threat on the defence side, but it's always a trade-off. And for me personally, if I have that sort of money, I will always put it in public services, you know, any day and twice on Sunday, because for me, that is how we strengthen our society. That's how we build our social um, settlement. That's how we allow people to get ahead. Tom, uh, Boris Johnson loved a bit of dress up and he would call Zelensky endlessly in moments of domestic crisis. Can he expect a lot of hello, it's Liz on uh, the Ukrainian presidential phone, do you think? Yeah, he did love dressing up, didn't he? I remember when um, when he was mayor of London and his city was literally on fire. He was unable to find a plane home from his holiday driving a Winnebago around Colorado. And yet whenever he was in trouble domestically, while, actually, while the actual prime minister, he didn't find it so hard to get on a plane and turn up for a stroll around Kiev. But that's <laughs> that was his way. I mean, I have no doubt that, that Liz Truss will... Um, be on the phone to Zelensky constantly and will take any opportunity to have any sort of photo call with Zelensky whenever whenever there is one going. But that is no bad thing. Um, Johnson's critics uh, for, for a long time now have said that, well, everyone would have done the same on Ukraine. You know, you can't take any credit for what you've done on Ukraine because everybody would have done the same. And we must hope that that proves to be true. I mean, there's going to be complete unity on, on Ukraine between Tory and Labour. I don't think Keir Starmer has ever sought to make any mileage out of Boris Johnson's perpetual Zelensky photo ops. I might be wrong on that, but I don't think he has. So if there is continuation of the policy and continuation of complete unity around it, that's no bad thing. And we hope, I hope whoever wins carries on in that vein. With no real differences on the protocol bill, the Rwanda policy, support for Ukraine, you don't have you do have to wonder: is there any point in having a new PM anyway? Well, yeah, but there's complete unity with regard to well, two of those policies: the Northern Ireland Protocol and the Rwanda policy are essentially illegal. So the idea that there's complete unity that, that, that nothing will change because both of them have got the same idea, well, that's just not the case. I mean, you can have unity; you can you can have both candidates say. That their their main policy is to punch Mike Tyson in the face. Well, Mike Tyson is Mike Tyson is going to punch them back, and then you will see the difference between the two candidates. Right? Whoever wins, they will definitely come unstuck on Rwanda, and they will definitely come unstuck on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And how they will respond, I imagine, will be quite different. Rishi Sunak is is far less insane, so one suspects that if he tries to see through these illegal policies his response will not be the same as this trust is. So there will be, there will certainly be differences on those key policies because it's how they, re- how they will respond to the fact that it's not going to go how they're claiming it's going to go to try and win this weird election. Fantastic mid-campaign slogan, I'm less insane. <laughs> <laughs> Before we wrap this up, do we have any idea what the international community thinks of these two uh, fantastic picks? Well, I imagine they think, Who? Obviously, Truss is Foreign Secretary, so yes, she will have, have met a few people on the world stage. But, that, you know, I think most people look at Britain, our fairly regular turnover of prime ministers, and they just say, OK, let's just sit this one out. Finally, the Queen parachuting out of a helicopter with James Bond, the Cauldron, Shakespeare, Beckham, Kenneth Branagh, Reserves of Our Kingdom, Brunel, and NHS the Musical. This week marks 10 years since Danny Boyle's 2012 Olympics opening ceremony. For many of us, it's become a totem of the last time Britain felt like a sane place to feel proud of. 
On the anniversary in 2018, Yvette Cooper tweeted, makes me almost cry to think it was only six years ago. And even Liz Truss invoked it in 2019. We need to revive the Olympic 2012 spirit, a modern, patriotic, enterprising vision of Britain. Hooray! And we need to use Brexit to achieve that. Oh, dear. Even in the depths of the pandemic, it was repeated on TV to give the nation something to feel good about. Is the 2012 ceremony worth putting closer to the centre of the political conversation or is it just centrist nostalgia for the likes of me? Um, Miata, can you remember watching it? I do remember watching it. Um, I don't remember where, but I remember being in a pub and I remember being with a load of friends. Um, and I remember just, yeah, feeling really proud uh, and just thinking it was kind of a little bit zany, very British, but like, yeah, really impressive. It's hard to believe that it was not that long ago in the grand scale of things. Um, and for me, I think the thing that's the most painful is the, the, the image we projected at that time was like Britain at its best. And it feels like we've fallen, we've fallen so, you know, foul of that. Um, and when I have, you know, family in Africa or, you know, colleagues across the world, that's like, what, what's happening to you guys? You guys are a basket case. It's really mortifying, um, but also very true. I remember talking to a, a, a Russian colleague uh, in the mid, around about 2016, 2017, and she said, congratulations, Russia is no longer the most ridiculous country in the world. And I just thought, oh, God, that really hurts quite badly. Um, Tom, you used to be an Olympic correspondent. How, how did you feel about the the message of that Olympics? Did we perhaps overburden it? <clears throat> yeah, I, I did. Yeah. And of course, if you want to ask me where I was, the, the obvious answer is that I was there and it was absolutely spectacular. Wow. Um, I, I, um, no, I don't think we overburdened it. Right. I mean, I think people loved it and people loved it for a good reason. There is a big British pastime and it's gone on for a long time, which is so many authors go off to write books about what is Britishness and they keep doing it principally because there's no correct answer. And what that ceremony did above all else, was to, tell it, was to tell a really clear message about what Britishness was, but specifically did it in a way that relates to the lives that British people live today or, or 10 years ago, but also today. You know, it wasn't the Tower of London and Beefeaters and Magna Carta and yada, yada, yada. It, obviously, it was the NHS, but also it was that long, long, long um, sort of trawl through the like post-war, post-60s British music which British people love. And it's such a crucial thing that Britain has contributed to the world, but not but not in the way that we always tell that story about how we contributed things via the empire or things via this or things via that. They were things that we've contributed to the world that people living right now feel in a visceral sense. And I think that's absolutely why people loved it. And it was such a clever thing to do. And, that, and, that, and that's why it was so good and will always be remembered as being so good. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't completely obvious. Music by Underworld, in many respects, it was like Britain the rave. It was like, let's have an enormous celebration around all the things that belong to all of us rather than just hop out of, of, of history books. It was different from similar events in that it had a narrative. It had been scripted by Frank Cottrell Boyce. It was attacked by a lot of conservative voices afterwards, who people who badly misjudged the mood. Surprise, surprise, uh, Toby Young misjudged the mood, called it a £27 million par party political broadcast for the Labour Party. And the Conservative MP Aidan Burley said it was the most lefty opening ceremony I've ever seen. They both got roasted for it. How do you think it looks on the other side of the pandemic, you know, when we kind of lionised the NHS and then turned around and refused to give nurses a decent pay rise? Was it perhaps a little bit, I don't know, overly sentimental and less concerned with the reality of what the NHS needs? Well, I mean... <laughs> 
the fact that Toby Young and it's almost wrong to say that Toby Young and Aidan Burley made tits themselves because they just are tits. It's not. It's, it's, <laughs> not, it's not. It's not like they made themselves look stupid. They I mean that they literally are. I mean, I can't remember whether or not this was before or after or during Aidan Burley having to lose his job for going on a Nazi skiing holiday. Uh, so I don't think anybody should really be too concerned about what Aidan Burley thinks. That's a hell of an um, Expedia well, search. I don't. It's not Danny Boyle or Frank Cottrell Boyce's job to make a point in this ceremony about NHS funding or something like that, or or, or even really to attack the Conservative government at the time, because obviously it had, you know, the, the bedroom tax had already happened and so on and so forth. It was just their job to make a feel-good narrative around Britain and the lives that British people lead. I mean, I know I've already said that, but it is the crucial point. I don't think it missed the point or or or, or, or didn't address deeper political problems because that is in no way the job of an Olympic opening ceremony. The job of an Olympic opening ceremony is to tell the story of a country and every single Olympic opening ceremony has done the same thing. It's just that we did ours with a lot more verve and a lot more wit as well because it's quite convenient that we came just after China and Danny Boyle said this at the time that he knew there's no way he could compete with the outrageous scale and spend of the Chinese of the Beijing Olympic opening ceremony. So what he had in his locker, he hoped, was more wit and more ingenuity. And he certainly delivered on that. I, I, I don't think it really matters that he didn't necessarily fully address the scale of Britain's political problems at the time. I, I, it, it was hardly his job to do that. Arthur, how did you feel about it? Where, where did you watch it? Well, I was actually, at the time, I, I was the British High Commissioner in uh, Trinidad. And therefore, you know, my job was to sort of promote promote Britain. And frankly, that, that, that thing was a massive help um, because it was, as Thomas said, it was witty, it was, it was clever, and it, it wasn't overblown, uh, you know, in a way that perhaps, particularly if you're in a country that has historically been colonised by Britain, you know, that, that there's some sensitivity to those sorts of things. But, and also, the Olympics themselves went off, you know, pretty much without a hitch. So it was, yeah, it was a brilliant time. And of course, as others have identified, yes, Politically, there were still issues there that we could uh, talk about. But if you just want to talk about the Olympics, I think it was a it was a fantastic job. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes, which entertainments, books, music, film, whatever, have given our panelists a break from the cruel and unforgiving world of politics. Arthur, how about you? Last weekend, I did the Angela Rayner thing, and I went to opera at Glyndebourne. Um, <laughs> and uh, obviously, you can't call it elitist now. Thanks, Angela. So that's good. Um, but also, I mean, it, you, it's hard to beat being in a beautiful place on an amazing sunny day, having a picnic, listening to beautiful music uh, with friends. And uh, as Angela has proved, it doesn't mean that you have to be a Tory or a Toff. Uh, so uh, whether it's Glyndebourne or some other opera festival... Uh, I heartily recommend it to everyone. Opera is the new rock and roll. Miata, how about what are you up to to take your mind off things? Well, I've been on holiday. I went to sort of Portugal, um, Sagres for the last sort of ten days. So I've been a long, long way from uh, UK politics. And I did a thing of not. I, I, to be fair, I couldn't resist just watching snaps of the leadership debates because it was just. Uh, so shocking, but I managed to pretty much switch off um, and recharge and feel great. And now I've been dropped back into the insanity, which is a bit for a wake up call. I'm just imagining the kids going, Mom, stop looking at debates, Mom. <laughs> yeah. Tom, what, what's been your uh, mind cleanser? 
Yeah, I wish I had something else to offer you, but I too have been on holiday. Uh, I've been to the Lake District for a week. And my skate route is simply not really being on the Twitters and not really paying very much attention to the Tory Leadership Contest, but just playing with my little daughter instead. And I guess that the, the thing is, right, usually going on holiday during the school holidays, it's slightly hellish. You slightly wish you didn't have to do it. But this time, this time, going on holiday in the summer holidays is like double bonus because not only you're on holiday, you're also missing a, w- a full week, maybe even a full <laughs> fortnight of the Tory Leadership Contest. So go now. You know, if you've got a sabbatical lined up from your, from your company, take it now. Get away. Don't come back till September the 5th at the very earliest. So that Tom's advice is wander lonely as a cloud in a lake district. Good one. <laughs> Rob, on mine, uh, I'm staying in Baking Hot Cities. Russian Doll Series 2, the fantastic Netflix time-twisting series, is back. There is a time twist in the new series, which involves going back to old New York in the early 1980s. It's fantastic. It's really funny. And it is exceptionally far removed from our political nightmare. So I recommend it. And that's the end of this week's Bonker. Thank you, Arthur Snell. Thank you. Thank you, Miata Fambole. Thanks for having me. And thanks to Tom Peck. Thanks very much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. If you like what we're doing, please do consider supporting us on the crowdfunding site Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out a little bit about it. You'll be helping us to pay hard-working journalists and producers, and you'll get benefits, including a shout-out on the podcast, like these. So it's hello and thanks from me to Vicky Knight, Michael Hughes and Ian Ashby. Many thanks from me to Mark Loveday, Sharon Davis and Alex Cornish. And finally, many thanks and best wishes from me to Ingrid Sigerson, Paul Daniels, amazing, and Strafford. See you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Arthur Snell, Mieta Fambola and Tom Peck. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Jonas Ofrenievich and me, Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Theme music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Bunker.